Chapter 4, filling in some of the blanks. If this Bible story is new to you, large numbers of professing Christians confess to having almost no knowledge of the Bible, or if you have had up till now only a very sketchy idea of it, let me now fill in some of the gaps and perhaps answer some of the questions which, as you read, may have formed in your mind. Remember that the overall story of the Bible is not complicated. It's delivered in reasonably easy language. It's however an ancient Jewish story originating in a different culture from ours. It's a purely messianic story. This is hardly surprising since Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. We need to learn to relate to that ancient world. Nevertheless, the Bible is meant for us all not just for specialists. Certainly, there are technical corners of the Bible which need specialist treatment, but the plot as a whole is very clear. There's a God, one God, the Father, who created everything for a very good purpose. He had Jesus, his Son, and the Kingdom of God in mind from the beginning. That Messianic Kingdom purpose has been obscured and distorted with God permitting it by allowing a measure of freedom for us to make our own often very wrong choices. Also, he's allowed us to be fooled by the devil, who is called in the Bible, quote, the deceiver of the whole world. Revelation 12, verse 9. We human beings really ought to have been paying better attention to what God says and not to have allowed ourselves to be so easily and fully bamboozled by the devil's false versions of religion. So massive is the present influence of the devil, only as far as God allows, that he's called the devil, that is, the God of this present age, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4. The Apostle John said that, quote, the whole world lies in his power. 1 John 5.19 The present nations are nowhere in the Bible said to be Christian. They will belong to Christ only when Jesus comes back to inaugurate the kingdom worldwide. There's an invisible spiritual being called Satan, or the devil, who is relentlessly opposed to God's immortality plan, and he works hard, playing on the natural weakness of mankind, to make it incomprehensible. That Satan came up to Jesus in the wilderness, spoke to him and tested him, tempted him to take the easy or the spectacular way to success, is found in Matthew 4, 1 to 11. Jesus was wise enough and strong enough to resist the devil's clever lies and half-truths, Half-truths are usually the most pernicious and effective falsehoods. So well equipped was Jesus with the truth of Scripture, God's words to us humans, that the devil was no match for the unique Son of God. But Satan continued to try to get Jesus off track at every opportunity. He works against God and God's design for human beings. Jesus is the Son of God, 
and the explanation of what it means for Jesus to be the unique Son of God is provided for us in a simple statement from the angel Gabriel, who announced to Mary, the Virgin, and I quote, Holy Spirit will come over you, and the power of the Most High God will overshadow you, and for that reason precisely, the one to be begotten or fathered will be called the Son of God. That's in Luke 1, verse 35. Quite simple. The miraculously generated or begotten Son in Mary's womb is the Son of God. What does Son of God mean here? Gabriel explains that Jesus is entitled to be the Son of God precisely because he was miraculously created by God himself using the power of his creative spirit, the Holy Spirit. It is tremendously important to follow the words Gabriel gives us here at the beginning of Luke's Gospel. Luke has supplied us with an invaluable key to the proper understanding of the identity of Jesus. He explains what Son of God means. The basis and reason for Jesus being the Son of God is provided. Son of God means that Jesus had a supernatural beginning in Mary due to a miracle performed by God. That miracle makes him Son of God. Jesus had no human father. God's power simply intervened to produce a pregnancy without benefit of a human father. It is important to realize that this was a sheer miracle from God. So important was that miracle that Gabriel tells us that the miraculous begetting or fathering of Jesus is the exact reason for Jesus' identity as Son of God. Luke 1 verse 35 provides a precious definition of the meaning of Son of God, but that definition has been discarded in traditional theology. Here we must simply say that you almost certainly did not learn this stupendous fact about who Jesus is in church. I won't go into detail here, but a very different reason will be offered you by church tradition as to how Jesus is the Son of God. Churches have adopted a quite different account of why and how Jesus is the Son of God. They actually substituted the entirely unbiblical title, God the Son, in place of Son of God. I simply invite you to pay attention to God's messenger Gabriel and learn from him rather than from any contrary church creed or theory. That is the reason why Jesus is the Son of God. What reason? The marvelous miracle worked by God in Mary. And for no other reason, Luke said, Jesus is the second Adam. Adam is also called the Son of God in Luke 3, verse 36. You will, I'm sure, immediately appreciate the direct parallel with the creation of the first man, Adam. Adam was formed from the dust of the ground. God then breathed his animating spirit of life into the man formed from the dust, and Adam became a living creature. The King James Version translates the Hebrew word nephesh as soul.
but does not allow you to see that the same word is applied also to animals. Thus, animals are also, quote, living creatures or souls. A living creature is just that, a living being. In Genesis, the great whales and other creatures are also called, quote, living creatures. Neither Adam nor any of the animals were created with a, quote, immortal soul, a part of them which could not die. Thus, any church which teaches that men and women have an immortal soul which survives death is trading on a falsehood, and a serious one, since it was in fact the devil and not God who told the first couple that they would not die even when they disobeyed. God said that when and if they disobeyed him, they would surely be on the way to death, and indeed they died. The descendants of that first human pair also die. There's nothing more certain, it's been rightly said, than death and taxes. The only hope of living again for any of us is in the resurrection. The resurrection will happen, as we have seen, when Jesus arrives again on earth. That will also be the time when the nations of the present world are turned over to the control of the kingdom of God which will then belong to God and to his chosen Son and Messiah, Jesus. You can read this in a beautiful and memorable statement in the book of Revelation, chapter 11, verses 15 to 19. I'm simply going to connect the two seventh trumpet passages to explain how the present world systems are going to become the worldwide kingdom of God. All good Bible study is done by connecting related information from the various writers. Here first is the famous seventh trumpet statement in the book of Revelation, an important book given to Jesus by God and recorded by the Apostle John. It's a prediction and vision of the tremendous future event which will be Jesus' spectacular arrival back on earth. I quote, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices shouting in heaven, The whole world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders sitting on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped him. And they said, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who always was, for now you have assumed your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry with you, but now the time of your wrath has come. It's time to judge the dead and reward your servants. You will reward your prophets and your holy people, all who fear your name, from the least to the greatest, and you will destroy all who have caused destruction on the earth. Then, in heaven, the temple of God was opened and the ark of his covenant could be seen inside the temple. Lightning flashed, thunder crashed and roared. 
there was a great hailstorm and the world was shaken by a mighty earthquake. End of quotation from Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 to 19. We could say that this brilliant passage of Scripture sums up the colossal revolution and restoration that is going to occur when God sends Jesus back to set up the kingdom of God. No wonder the kingdom of God is the heart of the Christian gospel. It's the only ultimate and really good news. The kingdom is the only government which is going to survive permanently. It is when the kingdom comes at Jesus' return that the Christians who have died will come back from death, not from heaven, but from death to life. Here is the related seventh trumpet passage, which also links the coming of Jesus to establish the kingdom with the resurrection of the faithful. Paul described the event like this. Quotation. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the dead will be raised. Death will be swallowed up in life. We will put on immortality. That's from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 52 to 54. This is the crowning moment of success for all who put their hope in Christ and his offer of indestructible life in the future kingdom. You see now how the kingdom of God will be inaugurated by the return of Jesus to resurrect the faithful of all the ages. Now back to the constitution of man for a moment. I trust this point is now clear to you. You and I were not born with immortality. This is a vitally important truth since it enables you to understand who you are as a human being. You are now mortal. You can and will die, unless, of course, you happen to survive alive until Jesus returns, and even then you will have to be transformed from mortal to immortal. Man does not have an internal part known as an immortal soul. If he did, that soul would indeed have to go off to God in heaven while the body alone died. But if there's no immortal soul in man, then at death the whole man dies, and the only solution to that tragedy is that the whole man will be brought back to life in the resurrection when Jesus returns to earth. That is the biblical teaching about the destiny of man. The other view, that man was made with an immortal part, is a piece of pagan philosophy which does not belong in true Christianity. Several church groups and many excellent scholars of various denominations thankfully understand this important fact about the makeup of man, who we really are. Martin Luther, the reformer, some sections of his writings have probably been cooked to weaken what he said, and William Tyndale, the heroic translator of the Bible into English, for which he was tragically martyred, understood what happens at death. But the vast majority of church members persist with the non-biblical idea 
that their souls, so-called, cannot die, and that the dead must still be alive now in heaven or hell. The Roman Catholic Church, at one point in its history, even encouraged its members to pay for special masses conducted by the priests to shorten the time that their dear dead relatives would have to spend in, quote, purgatory, which was said to be a temporary place of torment and suffering for those who were not yet fit for, quote, heaven. Other mainstream churches never subscribed to this idea of a temporary hell or purgatory. They simplified the system by saying that all who are outside Christ go straight to hell, there to be tortured for endless ages of time. At the same time, they want the public to believe that God is a God of infinite compassion. We're going to try to weave together the various strands of the Bible story so that it will make sense in all its brilliant simplicity. Again, some of this may be new to you. Take time to ponder it all. Wake up thinking about it. Go to sleep at night, mulling it over in your mind. Do not make hasty judgments about what you are reading. Study the Bible. Be a Berean. The Bereans were those noble-minded souls in Acts 17, verses 11 and 12, who painstakingly examined what Paul was telling them about the meaning of life and salvation. They, quote, examined the scriptures on a daily basis to see if what they were hearing was true. And so Luke says, many became believers. That's to say, they were persuaded and compelled by Paul's revelation of God's immortality program in Christ. They became members of the church by being baptized in water, immersed in the presence of fellow believers as a public statement of their intention to follow Jesus for the rest of their lives through thick and thin. Jesus had made water baptism part of the instructions for ministry to his followers for the whole period until he comes back. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Jesus himself was baptized. He, Jesus, baptized his disciples using his agents to perform this rite. You'll find that in John 3, verse 22 and 26, and John 4, verses 1 and 2. Peter considered the act of baptism a response to a direct command of Jesus, and he, quote, commanded them to be baptized in water. See Acts 10, verses 47 and 48. Peter took the matter of baptism in water very seriously. He recognized that he would be in direct disobedience to God if he prevented believers, in this case Gentiles, from undergoing water baptism. I quote, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. We will find that in Acts 10, verses 47 and 48. The refusal of water baptism would be in direct opposition to God 
Jesus, and apostolic practice. Peter even rehearsed this story and noted that refusing water baptism would have been a direct confrontation of God's will. Acts 11 verse 17. The refusal of baptism in water to new converts would have been a refusal to do what God and Jesus had commanded. Note the same word refuse or forbid in the Greek in Acts 10, 47 and Acts 11 verse 17. Some have been tragically led into direct disobedience to Jesus by being taught that water baptism is not part of Christian practice. Note please that, quote, believing means being persuaded, as in Acts 28, verses 23 and 24. God gives us a mind and expects us to use it. God, from the beginning, has sent his agents in the form of prophets in the Old Testament, and then the ultimate prophet, Jesus, the Son of God. God's offers to mankind were very often refused by those who heard them. Even Jesus was largely rejected by hostile Jews in his own day and by many others of all the nations when his kingdom message was later brought to them. The human race has a terrible, tragic history of not listening to what God says to us for our good. The records show that many of the prophets, God's spokesmen and agents, were simply murdered by the people who heard them speak. People are so confused that they easily become hostile to anyone who would kindly show them the truth. Some cult leaders confuse their followers so severely that it takes much time and study to deprogram them so that they can understand and follow the teachings of Jesus. Jesus even promised to send, quote, wise men and professional theologians or scribes to assist people to understand God's will and God's plan. Matthew 23, verse 34. If one has learned a piece of religious so-called truth wrongly, it will require a sort of spiritual surgery to correct it. We all tend to cling tenaciously to what we have learned from beloved teachers, often without careful examination of other points of view. The technique of a cult is to isolate its members from the wider world of Bible study and commentary and to instill a false sense of competence. If, for example, one proposes a doctrine or practice which is practically unheard of in the past history of biblical studies, it's almost certainly wrong. It's an illusion to suppose we do not need the advice of others and their input when arriving at proper understanding. Theology is done in community and not, quote, on an island. Jesus is the classic example of rejection for no good reason. Many of those who heard Jesus teach, including the religious authorities, believed that Jesus was an agent of the devil and that he deserved to die. Religious leaders, quite mistakenly, blinded by their own religious traditions, 
believed that the ordinary people needed to be protected against Jesus, who, the authorities said, was working for the dark powers. Even Jesus' friends at one time suspected that he might have been an occult worker, a sort of magic man and a menace to public order and spirituality. Jesus responded by telling his followers that the time was going to come when they would be killed. And those killing the believers in Jesus would be people who, quote, thought they were doing God a service. You'll find that in John 16, verse 2. Can you imagine that? Religious people were so totally confused that they thought they were helping God's cause by getting rid of Jesus. The question is, have things changed very much? Has the human race slowly become enlightened and wise? Do we now all instinctively know the difference between truth and error? Would we spot a false teacher or prophet if we saw or heard one? Or might we side with error against truth? Jesus took a very negative view of how his teaching would fare after he left. He even doubted that the faith would survive at all. And he wondered, quote, when the Son of Man comes, will he find the faith on the earth? You'll find that in Luke 18, verse 8. In this connection, I want to finish this chapter by taking you to the most startling and alarming of all the recorded words of Jesus. Reading these words, we have all been duly warned. There's no possible way that we can be complacent or self-satisfied. These are the terrifying words from Jesus. Listen to this. I quote, Not all people who sound religious are really godly. They may refer to me as Lord, but they still won't enter the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God. The decisive issue is whether they obey my Father in heaven. On judgment day, many will tell me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and performed many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Go away. The things you did were unauthorized. Anyone who listens to my teaching and obeys me is wise, like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rain comes in torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against that house, it won't collapse because it's built on rock. But anyone who hears my teaching and ignores it is foolish, like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rains and floods come and the winds beat against that house, it will fall with a mighty crash. After Jesus finished speaking, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he taught as one who had real authority, quite unlike the teachers of religious law. You'll find that quotation in Matthew 7, verses 21 to 29. This passage of Scripture has got to be the most unsettling section of the Bible. It's possible to be horribly deceived 
one can be acting or imagining that one is active as a Christian preacher, even doing miracles and casting out demons, and be, as this translation has it, unauthorized, never recognized by Jesus as part of his team. These are awful verses. I, for one, want to know how such a devastating and shattering state of affairs could come about. What, according to Jesus, is the decisive issue? It has to do with obeying Jesus, which is the same as doing the will of God, who is his Father. That is where the heart of the issue lies. Doing the will of God and of Jesus, God's final agent. As we continue, we want to look in more detail at this question of, quote, doing the will of God and obeying Jesus. I quote, he who hears and obeys is on the right track. Others are not. Many will imagine sincerely that they're on the right track, but it will turn out that they are not and never had been. And others will start out on the right path to the kingdom, but will lose their way and go into darkness. It sounds as if being a Christian is going to involve some relentless effort, the effort to discern true from false, light from darkness. Our spiritual house must be built on a rock, but in this deceived world, it is possible unknowingly to build it on sand. The collapse of the house on sand is inevitable. We want to avoid such a shattering collapse at all costs. The outline of God's story is, as we've seen, relatively easy. But it's going to take effort and dedication on our part to become fully versed in God's great immortality plan. Jesus did not just tell us to be, quote, good people. He began by issuing a command that we believe the gospel of the kingdom. You'll find those words in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. This means becoming involved in God and Jesus' own kingdom immortality plan. This is where the vital obedience Jesus talked about begins. Listen to Jesus' first command. And this is the place to start. Repent and believe the gospel about the kingdom. Mark 1, verses 14 and 15. Peter said the same thing as he opened his first epistle. He spoke of, quote, obeying Jesus and being sprinkled with his blood. 1 Peter 1, verse 2. Why not start with Jesus' first comprehensive command in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. We're not going to learn everything in one day, but at least we can get started and work out our salvation with fear and trembling, as Paul said in Philippians 2, verse 12. That is, with a sober sense of the tremendous issues of life and death involved. What we need to do, obviously, is to pay the closest attention to the teachings of Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate expert guide to success in the coming kingdom. 
he is, quote, that final prophet whom God from ancient times promised to send us. See Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 to 18, Acts 3, verses 22, and Acts 7, verse 37. Jesus is the master teacher of the way that leads to immortality. He himself had to go through the course which leads to the kingdom, and he was triumphant. He won the gold medal. He has gained immortality, and he can never die. He is qualified to take his place on the throne of the kingdom of God in Jerusalem. He is the pioneer in God's immortality plan. Meanwhile, at present, he's a compassionate and merciful high priest to assist those on the way to salvation in the kingdom of God. We are to follow in his footsteps in the adventure which leads to life forever in the kingdom which the God of heaven is going to establish on earth. Daniel 2 verse 44. Let us now add some more pieces of the puzzle in the great plan unfolded in the Bible. As we do this, we must clearly keep our eye constantly on this business of, quote, doing the will of God. This is the key to everything.